Hi, my name is Martin Nutty, and the grandly titled Nutty Chronicles is an episodic history of my family. The people featured in these stories will not appear in history books recounting the lives of the great and important. Rather, this is the story about a family of modest circumstances, which I hope will provide a window into an Irish past rarely visited. I've combined anecdotes, genealogical sources, informed speculation, and broader history to give a sense of the lives my family lived and experienced over the last two centuries. And so, without further ado, The Nutty Chronicles. Episode 7 A Bed of Thorny Roses Early in 1959, my parents Anne Hall and Fred Nutty travelled into Dublin City. Their destination was a second-floor jeweller on O'Connell Street. Dad carried 15 pounds in his pocket, a modest sum that would amount, by my calculations, to 335 euros these days. They had agreed to get married, and now Dad was bringing Mom to pick out her engagement ring. What she didn't know then, and would only emerge years later, was the source of those funds. I don't know Dad's circumstances at the time of this trip to Dublin. 1959 Ireland was a difficult place to carve out a living. Over the prior decade, droves of Irish people, some 15% of the population, had immigrated in search of a better life from their economically isolated island, rampant with both underemployment and joblessness. Indeed, my parents had talked about immigrating to New Zealand around that time. Fortunately, things were to change for Dad that year, as he secured a position as station manager for the Agricultural Institute in Concealy, a small locale just north of Dublin City. Whether that employment had been secured at the time of the trip to the jeweller is unknown. What is clear is Dad was short of cash and resorted to radical, some might say cruel action, to raise the money for this trip. Mom only revealed the story to me recently, heartsick at the harsh choice. She only became aware of the true details 
after their marriage when dad revealed that he sold his beloved dog Trigger to come up with the cash. Now, in dad's pantheon of dogs, no other came close to Trigger. When dad got to talking about his hunting days, he would get wistful when relating stories about this red setter hunting dog, how clever he was, how well he quartered the hunting terrain, and how he paid attention to hand signals so as not to disturb the quarry. I have a childish recollection of asking what had become of Trigger, to which Dad responded that he'd been sold to an acquaintance who had greatly admired the dog's hunting ability. Apparently the buyer had suggested his willingness to buy Trigger at some point, a proposal that seems to have been stored away in Dad's memory banks. As a child, I recoiled from the story, being a lover of dogs then and to this day. I never asked what caused him to sell his beloved Trigger. Maybe I was scared of what the answer would reveal, and only all these years later did I learn the sad truth. What am I to make of this transaction? It would not have been a decision taken lightly having observed how fond Dad was of the various family dogs over the years. It smells sadly of desperation, secrecy and shame. I imagine my 33-year-old dad feeling pressure to provide Mama a suitable ring, wanting to start his own happy home life, desirous to escape a suffocating atmosphere under his parents' roof and being too ashamed to admit that he couldn't afford a ring. More than 60 years later, Mom is troubled by the ring story, wishing Dad had told her of his plans so she could have dissuaded him from a separation that was no doubt painful for both him and Trigger. Fortunately for Mom, preparations for the wedding were not clouded by the details of this story. She had started out life in the town of Carlisle in the north of England. Her life began in sorrow with the death of her mother Eileen from birth complications. However, her maternal grandparents, a prosperous cattle farming family, brought her into their happy household, where she was raised as the baby's sister of her uncles and aunts. Around 1936, the family had decamped from Carlisle and moved to Dublin. Mom's grandfather, Martin Casey, after whom I'm named, seems to have wanted to retire to Ireland, the country of his birth. The move cannot have been without pain. Mom left her father, Arthur Hall, behind, and two Murray uncles, who are well settled in England and running the family farm. Along with her younger uncles and aunts, the family settled in the parish of Clonsilla, just outside Dublin, and ultimately she would come to live in the suburb of Black Rock, where her grandparents finally retired. It was from that Black Rock home that Mom set out for her wedding ceremony at the Church of St. John the Baptist on September 23, 1959. She was accompanied by her uncle, another Martin Casey who was 18 years her senior, 
This Martin would prove to be enormously important to my immediate family. He had established himself as a successful accountant in Dublin and had inherited the family property at Clonsella. At certain pivotal points, when major financial decisions were being made, Martin would be sounded out and could be relied upon to give a common-sense, unvarnished opinion. Another aunt and uncle would anchor the wedding that day, and they too, like Martin, would become fixtures in our lives. Mom's aunt, Louise Casey O'Brien, was maid of honour, and her uncle, Philip Casey, a priest, would perform the actual ceremony. Following the nuptials, there was a reception at the Salt Hill Hotel in Monkstown, where pictures were taken, and then the newlyweds departed for their honeymoon in the west of Ireland, where they stayed at Ashford Castle. When my parents returned from their West of Ireland honeymoon, they settled initially in Malahide, a couple of miles from Dad's new job in Concealy. They were not to stay there long, as the job came with a house. To that effect, a bungalow was being purpose-built next to the Agricultural Institute. This benefit did come with drawbacks, as the house came rigged with an alarm system, which was triggered when the Institute boilers shut down unexpectedly. These boilers fed heat to greenhouses which housed plants that could not be exposed to cold overnight, and periodically Dad would be roused from his sleep when the troublesome heating system failed. I don't remember the alarms, but my older siblings Stefan and Anne do. We were born in the first half of the 60s, and collectively this was our first home, although my memories of the place are vague. I suppose it's not a surprise that my recollections are fragmentary, as this was my home for only the first three years of my life. We lived walking distance from the local church, St. Nicholas of Myra, which Mom attended periodically on weekdays. Even then, I was not a huge fan of church-going. The expectation of reverential silence and ritualistic response was stultifying to my childish mind. I recall being glared at by an older, scarfed woman for some breach of behaviour, which only deepened my distaste for the boring, cold church. The only satisfactory part of the experience was the exit and the walk back to the Haven home, whose red tile roof and brick trim I could see in what seemed to be the far-off distance to my chubby short legs, but in truth was a little more than a quarter-mile distant. I'm somewhat fuzzy on Dad's duties as the Institute Station Manager, as are other members of the family. My sister Anne recalls that in the early days the Institute had livestock which needed daily care. She also suggests that it's likely Dad was responsible for the coordination of the facility's workmen. It seems that Dad's responsibilities evolved quickly over the years, and soon he was heavily involved in tomato research which was one of the Institute's first successes. Now, tomatoes were certainly not new to Ireland at the time, but given Ireland's dubious summer weather, this sun-loving crop could not be grown consistently at scale in the outdoors. 
The solution was to produce the crop indoors, in glass houses, which was something not done in Ireland at that point in time. Apparently, Dad played a successful and significant role in this project, and the Institute's research and proof of concept seeded an important new area of agricultural production in Ireland. Following his success with the tomato research, Dad was seconded to the horticultural unit, which had been established in 1962. It was there that he made his mark, and where he would remain for the rest of his professional life. The term horticulture is somewhat amorphous. A basic understanding of Latin tells us that it refers to the cultivation of a garden, hortus being garden and culture, well, that's self-evident. Wikipedia defines the term as the cultivation of plants, mainly for food, materials, comfort and beauty. In the Institute, it seems the unit was focused on research into decorative plants, or beauty if you will. Needless to say, this is a massive area of research and the young unit must have had difficulty in defining the specific area that they would focus on. It seems one conversation in this area at the time would lead to a decision that would change the course of my family's life. My sister Anne tells me that while casting around for worthwhile projects, some of Dad's work colleagues suggested that research into large-scale rose production might be worthwhile. Roses could be sold as bushes for gardens, to provide cut flowers for floristry, their petals are the ingredients for rose water used in both perfume and as a flavoring agent. Even the fruit of the plant, known as the rose hip, can be used for medicinal purposes and to make jam. While the virtue of multiple sales channels of the versatile plant was apparent, some unnamed co-worker opined that production of roses could not be done at scale in Ireland as there were multiple challenges that would need to be solved for a plant that is notoriously finicky. That opinion seems to have won the day at the Institute. However, Anne advises that it served as a red flag to the bull that was Dad. While the Institute turned its attention to other matters, Dad decided to pursue a side project to disprove the accepted wisdom. Bernie Johnson, a friend of my dad, owned a garden centre called Marlfield on the south side of Dublin. They'd met during dad's abbreviated college days and had stayed in touch. Bernie, who will go on to become Ireland's first gardening TV star, was likely attuned to the emerging demand for decorative plants. This emerging appetite was fueled by the expansion of Dublin suburbia during the 1960s. As Ireland emerged from the economic isolation of prior decades, housing estates mushroomed around Dublin, each house with an attendant garden calling out for some beautification. It seems roses were in fashion at the time, and market supply was poor, giving pricing power to producers. Whether Dad approached Barney or vice versa is unknown, but a deal was struck, and Dad contracted to deliver rose bushes to Barney. I don't know what the numbers looked like on this deal in terms of units or price, but Dad started up a rose business which would dominate family life for the next decade. 
My abiding memory of this time is surprisingly not of our Concealy home, but of trips out to my Uncle Martin's place in Clonsella. Dad had arranged to use some of Martin's land for the rose operation. I'm guessing Martin offered some of his land rent-free, and Dad, a child of the Depression, would have been cost-conscious and happy to take advantage of that kindness. Martin likely wanted to help my parents as they started out their life together, and I imagine the extra money was a helpful supplement to a growing family. But to understand Dad is to know that he was not particularly motivated by monetary incentives. He was more driven by the intellectual and operational challenge of proving that roses could be grown at commercial scale. Money would simply have been one barometric reading and confirming a proof of concept. It was not a goal, not ever, in Dad's life. I remember little of Dad's work at Tlancilla. My childish mind was absorbed by the rather grand property which consisted of a farm, a fine garden, and was patrolled by a fearsome and large French Briard called Magoo. Briard's function as both herd and guard dogs, and since the Tlancilla property lacked sheep, it seems Magoo's activities were limited to keeping visitors in check, which in my case frequently resulted in flattening me on the ground while applying unrequested tongue-administered face cleanings. Dad's work at Tlancilla would have been arduous. The production of a rose crop requires 18 months of lead time and multiple phases to deliver a saleable plant. The cycle commenced in the spring when the winter cold released its grip on the ground and the planting of rose stalks began. A rose stalk acts as a host plant for the fancy varieties that produce the dramatic blooms desired by buyers. These fancy roses, however, are the product of multiple generations of crossbreeding called hybridization, and while the blooms produced are fabulous, the crossbreeding has created plant roots which are delicate and weak. To combat this problem, rose growers start by planting a hearty rose variety known as a stock, which has the virtue of a strong root system. In Dad's case, he used Rosa Laxa, which he sourced from Holland or Denmark. The planting itself was a two-person job comprised of a digger and a planter. The digger handled a spade, which was driven into the ground, and then pushed forward to open up a slit into which the planter snaked the stock root. The spade was then quickly withdrawn and the ground tamped down by boot to firm the root into the ground. Repeat this process a couple of thousand times over a number of weeks and you have the beginnings of a crop and a planter with an aching back as I can confirm from personal experience. By the midsummer, these plantings are well established and ready for a grafting process known as budding. Now budding involves creating a tea incision in the stock's trunk, peeling back the young soft bark and inserting a bud from the desired rose variety known as the scion. The incision is then closed up with a plastic patch which protects the wound from the environment and holds the bud in place. In time the bud will bind to the host plant, fed by the stock's robust root system. The budding process itself can only proceed when fueled by a supply of scion material harvested from mature rose bushes of the species desired by the grower. 
The material comes in the form of budwood, which consists of rose stems containing multiple buds. However, rose stems are accompanied by thorns, which must be stripped so that the butter can quickly access the buds during the grafting process. One of my first jobs as a child, along with my older siblings, involved the removal of thorns from bundles of budwood delivered daily by Dad as he scoured the country for scion material from friendly gardeners. While Dad may not have been interested in the making of money, he had a deeply embedded belief in controlling costs and focusing his energy on the most critical aspects of any process he worked on. In the early years, he likely did the budding, but as the operation increased in scale, he could not source both the scion material in addition to budding duties. Both jobs had to be done simultaneously, and so he needed to hire skilled help. Through his network of industry contacts, he got in touch with a number of young Dutch students experienced in Holland's rose-growing business and had them come to Ireland. The students got to make a little money, and when the job was done, they had the opportunity to explore the country in the late summer. One of those students, Jacques van Nyrup, was godlike, a giant of a man, about six foot five with long blonde hair and a beard that would have been current with this late Beatles era. How Jacques managed to scrunch himself up to do the dexterous, back-breaking budding work at such incredible speed is still unknown to me. His work rate was tremendous, with 30 to 40,000 roses done in around six weeks. Jacques would go on to be a family friend for years to come and visit periodically, long after my family ceased rose production. By the beginning of the following spring, the grafted buds started to push their way through the patch and sprout from the rose trunk. What was originally a simple laxa rose has now transformed into a kind of frankenbush, part laxa, part scion rose. At this point, all the growth above the sprouting bud is cut back, leaving just the scion growth now fed completely by the robust laxa root system. Next time you look at a rose bush, take a look at the base of the bush and see if you can spot where the stock rose was cut back. All through the subsequent summer, the new sprout grows quickly and transforms into a fully fledged rose bush. By the autumn when the growth stops and then the leaves die back, the bush is now ready for sale and transplanting. As the weather grows cold and the days shorten, the rose grower lifts the bush from the ground. The earth is shaken from the roots. My sister Anne, then just a little girl, recalls working on this job with Dad. As he lifted the bushes from the ground, she would carry the freshly dug bare root plants to the field headland, where they were placed in a pile to be tied with twine and bunches of a dozen, and then cut back to prompt further growth density and facilitate transportation. All this multi-season work was done by Dad while holding a full-time job at Concealy Institute. Mom recalled Dad returning home after a full day of work, grabbing a quick bite to eat, and then making the 15-mile drive to Tlonsilla to do whatever the rose-growing cycle demanded at that point in time. Despite the strain of this schedule, Dad appears to have impressed at his institute job 
and was promoted from his job as station manager to experimental officer. This promotion created a dilemma, however, as the housing provided by the Institute had to be vacated for the new station manager. Rather than renting a home, my parents found a nearby holding a little over a mile distant from the bungalow that we were living in. Mom had a nest egg, an inheritance of her mother's dowry, which she used to purchase this new property. This land located in the townland of Mabestown had a three-room cottage, some outbuildings, and a little less than five acres. While my mom's dowry had paid for the land purchase, the cottage left much to be desired by 1968 standards. There was no plumbing and little in the way of heating. My mom's uncle and aunt, Philip and Louise Casey, loaned money to build a three-bedroom home. While work began in the house in the spring of 68, we moved into the old cottage. This move proved to be an exercise in 19th century living and its attendant problems. I recall going with Dad to the local village pump to fill up a water barrel. The pump was a mile distant from Mabestown, and without a car we would have had to resort to a well on the actual property. The well proved to be a fascinating play area, replete with water skaters, frogs and eels, and while the wildlife was of interest for me and my siblings, I imagine the potability of the water was pretty questionable. The absence of concealed bungalow creature comforts was felt even more acutely with each visit to the outhouse, which had been established in one of the old stable sheds at the property. Even as a three-year-old, I was cognizant of this deterioration in the family lifestyle and still shudder when I think back to bathroom trips, which seemed particularly drafty when the weather wasn't so good. I have no idea how Mom dealt with it all. It must have been challenging keeping three small children clean and fed in the limited circumstances. Her abiding memory, when we discussed it recently, was getting ready for bed one evening and pulling back the blankets only to have a couple of mice pop out. Then she recalled the weekly disposal of the outhouse bucket contents, which was actually Dad's chore and remembered my siblings and I finding this aromatic event to be particularly fascinating as we followed Dad in single file to the burial site in some kind of poop parade. Fortunately, the challenges of cottage life came to an end before the winter set in and the freshly built home felt extra luxurious with bathrooms, plumbing and central heat. With the completion of the new house, focus shifted to the land and its preparation for roses and the shift of the associated operation from Clonsilla to Mabestown. I still remember one miserable winter day when the whole family was out on our freshly harrowed field, clearing stones which would get in the way of planting. I was cold and unhappy in a petulant four-year-old way. It was a raw, wet, windy Irish day, and the frigid weather penetrated my bare hands as I carried cold stones to a central pile, which was to be collected and trucked away. I didn't understand the purpose of that miserable activity, 
and I imagine Dad was not inclined to explain how our efforts were helpful to him and the family as a whole. He wasn't given to an encouragement for a bewildered four-year-old. I only sensed an expectation to do one's duty and execute his commands in an unquestioning way. By the following spring, planting had begun, but not in the traditional way. Dad was forever looking for ways to save labour and speed things up. He had noticed one of the neighbouring farmers planting cabbage using a planter gizmo towed behind a tractor and realised it could be used for row stocks, and so, when the land softened that year, he arranged for use of the machine. Jack Seary, a sweet man who worked with Dad at the Institute and helped out around Mabestown along with my brother Stefan, took the seats at the back of the machine. A plank was placed between the two seats on which my sister Anne sat. Anne's job was to unbundle the stocks and hand to Jack and Stefan. I remember watching this for the first time, with the green monster rising in my gullet wondering why I had been adjudged insufficient to help with this fancy new machine. Years later, Anne told me how miserable she had been, chilled to the bone as she handed out the stocks, the only saving grace being the occasional tea break when a flasked hot sugary mix was shared by all the participants. There is a picture somewhere in the family home of my brother Stefan standing at the top of the Mabestown field. It's summer and the roses stretch out in neat rows behind him. Yellows, whites, reds, and even a dubious blue called Blue Moon, which I recall as more of a purple. The variety names come flooding back to me even though fifty years have passed since I was picking thorns off Budwood. Superstar, Uncle Walter, Queen Elizabeth, Chicago Peace. Dozens of varieties were grown at peak production. Around 40,000 rose bushes were under cultivation. Some varieties were detested by me as they were thornier than others, and so the budwood preparation was much more arduous. I'd like to tell you that I enjoyed my childhood roses experience and helping out but in truth, I hated it. Flicking thorns from budwood stems was an unfair drudgery to my childish mind. I resented it terribly when there was vastly more interesting games to play and explorations to be had. The beauty of it all, though, would occasionally penetrate and drive my sourness away. At times the scent of the roses would waft over and wrap around me on a warm summer day and I would realize how special it was. To this day, when I smell rosewater perfume, I flash back to the blooming field of my childhood, and a pang of nostalgia envelops me. The beauty was not lost on others. My sister Anne recalls a lady who would show up periodically when the roses were blooming and lean on the field gate, sometimes for an hour or two, taking in the blooms and enjoying the scent. One day, Dad noticed her and invited her into the field. She was from Sheriff Street in the heart of Dublin and had taken the bus out from the city to enjoy the flowering field. And so, 
Dad walked with her, through the rows laid out by him with his surveyor precision, telling her the names of the varieties, and cut a bunch of roses for her to take home on the bus. She was delighted with it all, and it is a good memory of her dad. There is a rose bush just inside the main gate of Dublin's National Botanic Gardens. Strangely, it is imprisoned by a railed circular fence. The enclosure protects this modest but special bush from visitors who want to snag a bloom, as it's said to have been cultivated from an original forebear, which was the inspiration for Thomas Moore's song, The Last Rose of Summer. Thomas Moore, often referred to as the Bard of Ireland, had visited the gardens of Jenkinstown Castle in Kilkenny sometime in the early 1800s and saw a late, long-blooming rose. The pink flowers, or likely singular remaining flower, stirred the bard and yielded the romantic, wistful lyrics and melody that are still recorded 200 years later by both traditional and classical soloists. It seems that an enterprising member of the Botanic Gardens in Dublin realized the virtue of having this rose would be attractive to visitors and must have sought out the bush at Jenkinstown and taken a cutting. An early example of Irish 19th century promotion, perhaps. My sister Anne tells me that Dad was called upon by the folks in the botanics to rescue this bush. Cultivated roses do not have a very long life, and so periodically have to be rescued or repropagated every 10 to 20 years. And so when the time came to replace the deteriorating bush in the botanics, Dad's rose-growing reputation resulted in a request for assistance. Whether this rose is an actual genetic, lineal descent of the original spotted by Thomas Moore is a matter for conjecture. Whatever the case, it yielded a beautiful song, which I'm delighted that my niece, Rosa Nutty, agreed to record a cappella in memory of our granddad. Tis the last rose of Left blooming alone All her lovely companions Are faded and gone No Soon may I fall 
ships decay and from love's shining circle the gems drop This bleak world alone This bleak world alone Through the late 1960s and into the early 1970s, Dad continued to successfully grow roses and the future appeared to be bright, until it wasn't. The bottom fell out of the market in 1972 or 73. My siblings Anne and Stefan differ on exactly why this happened. Stefan recollects that Woolworths got into the rose business and imported cheaper bushes from England, while Anne attributes the collapse in sales to simple market saturation. Dublin, despite its growth, was a smaller place back then, and there had to be a ceiling on how many bushes could be sold to suburban gardeners. Which sibling version is correct doesn't really matter. Perhaps there is truth in both recollections. I recall a dour day when Dad had a tractor come by the rose field to plough thousands of unsaleable roses back into the earth. It had to be heartbreaking watching the destruction of 18 months of effort. Things had changed, and sometimes the best one can do in these circumstances is to recognize the fact and switch to more productive efforts. And so Dad switched gears, and we all followed. I'd like to tell you that I enjoyed this time of roses but they were work, and I was often a surly child when faced with the chores that surrounded this effort. For me, this bed of roses came with thorns. For Dad, it was a massive effort which stretched across all seasons, culminating with the arduous work of lifting the bushes after he got back from his main job in the Concili Institute. In those wintry month evenings in Ireland, with the sun long gone, he laboured by Tilly Lamp, often alone. It was an extraordinary effort, and was no bed of roses for him either. Without this effort, my family would not have had the future successes that were to be visited on us all, and for that, I am deeply thankful. I'll pick up this story in the next episode, when I will finally tell the story of the Trinity Birch. I had planned on doing so in this piece, but another story intruded and had to be told first. Until the next time, you've been listening to The Nutty Chronicles, and my name is Martin Nutty.
In keeping with the family theme of this podcast, all music you've heard was performed by my niece, Rosa Nutty. All original music was created by Rosa. If you'd like to hear more of Rosa's music, please visit rosanutty.com. Hey folks, it's Martin, and thanks for listening. I just wanted to let you know that the podcast has its own website at thenuttychronicles.com. So, if you head over there, you'll find a page for each episode containing show notes and pictures of some of the people and places I've talked about. So go on, fire up your browser, and pay thenuttychronicles.com a visit. You can even leave a voice message for me there and I'll do my best to answer.